Good morning, church. So good to be with you. For those of you who, who don't know me, my name is Drew Jackson, and I serve as pastor of Hope East Village, a part of Hope Church NYC, and uh, it's, it's really great and an honor to be here with you all this morning. You know, every year on this third Sunday um, of January, I count it a great honor and privilege to be able to remember the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And for, for us as a community to be able to reflect on his legacy. A legacy that in this year of 2023, which marks the 404th year since the first ships carrying enslaved persons left the west coast of Africa and arrived on these American shores. It captures in many ways the, the beauty, the courage, the resiliency of black American life. And we take time to reflect on his legacy, not simply because of the great things he accomplished in society and challenging the three great evils of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation, and in painting for us a vision of hope for a more just world. But we do this because as one of the most prolific prophetic voices of our time, the witness of King's life moves us to turn our eyes toward the one that King followed. It must always be said that Martin King was first and foremost a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, committed to standing firm in his gospel and following in his way. As King said in his reflection on the Montgomery bus boycott, he said, we firmly believe in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. I can see no conflict between our devotion to Jesus Christ and our present action. In fact, I can see a necessary relationship. If one is truly devoted to the religion of Jesus, he will seek to rid the earth of social evils. The gospel is social as well as personal. And so on this MLK Sunday, as we take seriously that necessary relationship that King spoke of, I'd like to speak to you today from the topic, a revival of justice. A revival of justice. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful to be able to be here together this morning to be able to worship you, to meet with you, to hear from you. So God, as we gather in this place, Lord, I know that we come here carrying so many different things, Lord. Some, some of us come in experiencing the heights of joy. Others come experiencing the depths of sorrow. And a lot of us are somewhere in between. And so, Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, that you would meet us where we are that your spirit would minister to us, Lord, and that you would do what only you can do. And God, I just ask that uh, I, I wouldn't be a distraction to the things that you want to do and say this morning. So would you move me out of the way, Jesus? Hide me behind your cross and show yourself to indeed be all in all. And to that end, Lord, I ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, O oh God our strength, and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I, as I thought about what to share with you all this morning, I was moved to contemplate a current crisis that we are facing. It's not the crisis of a partisan political system that seems to cause more division and do more harm with each passing day. It's not the crisis of the world being threatened with yet another global war. It's not the ongoing crises of mass incarceration. 
an education system that is failing our children in certain communities, police brutality, hardworking people receiving starvation wages, and the constant threat of mass shootings. But the crisis I feel compelled to speak to today is the one facing the American church. A church that has in many ways throughout its history either passively allowed or actively perpetuated these other crises that we're speaking of. And in my estimation, this is a crisis of faith. It's a question being posed to us in this moment of where our ultimate loyalty and allegiance lies. Are we citizens of the kingdom of God who pledge all of our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and are committed to following in his way? Or will we prove ourselves to have a deeper allegiance to the empire in which we live through refusing to challenge injustice and instead seeking to maintain the status quo? As Dr. King might have put it, are, are we as the church being the conscience of the state or have we opted for being chaplains of the empire? It's a question that the church in every age and in every place has had to wrestle with. But I call this a crisis because large swaths of the American church have begun to show their cards. And the hand that they are laying down on the table has made one overwhelming declaration. We have no king but Caesar. And in times like these, it is the role of the prophets and the peacemakers to call the church back to itself. Back to the God who has first called us. Back to a fidelity to the way, to the, to the Jesus we say we love. To the gospel we proclaim to the creeds we confess. It was this role that Dr. King occupied as he surveyed the social, political, and ecclesial landscape of his day. Because King saw a church in which white American Christians used their doctrinal and theological beliefs to prop up a system of racial segregation, intimidation, and oppression known as Jim Crow. And where many black American Christians were refusing to engage the evils outside of the four walls of the church. He saw a church that had been captivated by the greed that was so characteristic of the American capitalist mindset. And he saw a church that had very little to say to the ever-growing gap between those in abject poverty and those with superfluous wealth. And so it was from this place that King stood up on November 4th, 1956, to address the National Baptist Convention. In this speech, he sought to reflect on the question, what would the Apostle Paul have to say to the American church if he were to write us a letter at this moment in time? As a reminder, the Apostle Paul was one of the great theologians and thinkers of the early church whose writings comp comprised the majority of the New Testament. And most of his writings were letters addressed to the church in specific cities. And they were mainly written as correctives to these churches in which Paul was calling them to more faithfully live out the way of Jesus. This question of what Paul would say is both an intriguing and a worthy question for us to consider, not only broadly speaking as the American church, but also for us as Hope Church NYC. 
What might a letter from Paul say if it showed up in our mailbox this week? This speech that he gave, which is simply titled Paul's Letter to American Christians, is a fascinating speech that I would encourage you to read if you haven't done so. And to summarize the main concern of the letter, I want to read for you just a brief excerpt. So speaking as though he were the Apostle Paul, King writes, American Christians, I must say to you as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, you are a colony of heaven. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is the empire of eternity. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. You must never allow the transitory, evanescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the Almighty God. See, King also saw a crisis in his day, a crisis of faith, a crisis of allegiance. And scripture in many places testifies to the truth that genuine faith must demonstrate itself with action. Or as the Apostle James put it, faith without works is dead. I can't say that I'm loyal to Jesus while refusing to love my neighbor who was created in the image of God. I can't say that I'm loyal to Jesus while I turn a blind eye to rampant oppression and injustice. I can't say that I'm loyal to Jesus when I am more interested in self-preservation than I am in self-giving love when I'm more interested in building higher walls than I am in building longer tables. The fruit of our lives will always tell us where our ultimate allegiance lies. The fruit of our lives will always tell us where our ultimate allegiance lies. You know, King's concern with the fruit that comes out of the people of God is one of the things that places him squarely within the prophetic tradition of the scriptures. The Hebrew prophets, of which Jesus can be included, were always concerned with the question, what does it mean to be the people of God in the midst of the world? Or as the prophet Micah might have put it, what does God require? And in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah puts pen to paper to begin to poetically and artistically answer this question. One thing you should know about the prophets is that the prophets were poets. They were artists. They were songwriters. More often than not, it's the artists of the culture who occupy the prophetic space and call humanity back to beauty, back to goodness, back to truth and justice and love. In Isaiah 5, we find one of Isaiah's original songs, which has become known as the Song of the Vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. 
and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded rotten grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield sour grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a wasteland, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his cherished garden. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard cry. As this song opens up, it It sounds almost like a love song where a lover is reflecting on his relationship with the one he loves. The original hearers would have immediately thought of this when they heard this language of a vineyard. But as the singer keeps on singing, you quickly recognize that this isn't a love song, it's a blues number. More like something you'd hear from the guitar of a B.B. King or the harmonica of a Muddy Waters. The lover, the the one who planted the vineyard, is lamenting that what he had hoped this relationship would produce, it didn't end up producing. And using the language of agriculture, he laments, what more could I have done? I planted this vine in fertile soil. I plowed the land and I cleared it of stones. I watched over it so that no wild animals would come and attack the vineyard. And I expected it to yield a crop of juicy, sweet grapes, but I only got sour grapes. When the singer starts to speak in plain language, you realize that the one singing is the Lord. And the vine he's talking about is the people of Israel. And God is saying, when I chose you and planted you in the soil of the world, my expectation was that you would yield a certain kind of fruit. I expected to yield a crop of justice from you, but instead you gave me oppression. I expected to yield a crop of righteousness from you, but instead you gave me cries of violent bloodshed. Now it's important for us to understand what it means when it says that the expected fruit of the people of God is justice and righteousness. The word for justice used here in the Hebrew is the word mishpat. And this is referring to a restorative kind of justice. So mishpat is not punitive justice, which is concerned with punishment. But mishpat is concerned with restoring to people what's been taken from them, repairing what's been broken, returning what's been stolen. Dr. King puts it this way as he puts language to this idea of mishpat. He says, justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. And so mishpat is a corrective, restorative, reparative sort of justice. And when it says that the expected fruit of the people of God is righteousness, it's the Hebrew word sedachah. And sedachah is the other side of mishpat. 
Quite simply, tzedakah means that the people of God live in such a way that mishpat isn't necessary. In other words, in our relationships with our neighbors, there shouldn't have to be restoring, repairing, and returning on our part because we're not living in such a way where we're crushing our neighbors under our feet, stripping dignity from them, taking for ourselves what belongs to them, and dishonoring the image of God in them. See, the only reason that justice is necessary is because righteousness is lacking. And the way that the people of God were to demonstrate their faithfulness, their loyalty, their allegiance to the covenant that God made with them was through their mishpat and their tzedakah, their justice and their righteousness. This is why the psalmist talks about how righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. This is who God is. But this prophetic poem from Isaiah gets even deeper. And you can only get the full force of it if you understand what Isaiah is trying to poetically do with his choice of words in the Hebrew. So we already said that when God came to inspect the fruit of Israel, he expected mishpat, but it says that God found mishpah instead, which means bloodshed. God came expecting to find the fruit of Sedakah, but instead found Sayakah instead, which means an outcry from the oppressed. Would you look at how similar each pairing of those words is? It's only a letter difference. It's intentional on the poet's part. It's intentional. He's saying that what might look like justice from a distance is actually producing bloodshed when you get up close and you inspect it. What might sound like righteousness from a distance is actually producing an outcry from those who are being oppressed. You see? It's like if we were to stand and look at the prison system here in America from a distance, we might say that America cares deeply about justice. But when you get up close and you inspect it, you see that the whole system is riddled with racism and bloodshed and punitive justice instead of restorative justice. Listen, it is high time in the American church for an up-close and personal fruit inspection. For too long a time, we have put forward as the church a fruit that looks good to the eyes but is sour in the belly. Throughout our history, this sour fruit has looked like teaching a well-packaged and put-together theology that leaves room for the justification of slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, and segregation. It has looked like preaching a gospel that is good news to the soul but has nothing to say to the body, which allows for a turning of the blind eye to mass incarceration and unjust immigration policies and gender inequity and homophobia and and all-pervasive greed that has its claws in every part of American life. It has looked like the fruit of shiny, fast-growing churches, but when you get up close, you see the embezzlement of money. Rampant patriarchy, the abuse of children, unchallenged racism, and a lack of concern for the poor. It looks like remaining silent when we are called to speak. 
Because as Dr. King said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. And I'm not saying that this is all there is. I'm not saying that this is the only fruit that the American church is producing. God always has a remnant, thank God. But it is the responsibility of the remnant to be a prophetic voice to the unrepentant. And this same question that we can ask of the broader church, we can ask of ourselves. What does the fruit of our lives look like when you get up close? As John the Baptist said, we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And as the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are actually in the faith. Because as I said earlier, the fruit of our lives will always tell us where our ultimate allegiance lies. But with that said, something Dr. King was well aware of is that the responsibility of the prophet is not only to offer a word of rebuke, but is also to offer a word of return. The job of the prophet is not only to call out, but it's always to call in. It's always to call in. As the prophet Joel said after pronouncing a word of rebuke to the people, yet even now, declares the Lord, even now return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he is ready to Yes, our God is a God of justice and a God of deep, deep forgiveness, deep mercy, always calling us back, always calling us in. God stands ready to both forgive and to transform, turning the cowardly into the courageous, the faithless into the faithful, and the peace breakers into peacemakers. God is faithful to God's word. And God has said that God will form a people who bear the fruit of righteousness and justice. God will remake a world where steadfast love and faithfulness faithfulness meet. Where righteousness and peace kiss each other, as the psalmist says. A day is coming when Sedekah will be the norm and Mishpat will no longer be necessary. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is risen from the dead, and new creation is just around the corner. And Jesus is committed to making you and I into people characterized by what Dr. King called the most powerful force in the universe, and that's love. The language that you and I will speak to one another in God's new creation. And so in closing, I'll call the worship team up at this point. As we close, I want to leave you with these words that Dr. King left with the National Baptist Convention on that November evening in 1956. When he said, American church, you may give your goods to feed the poor. You may give great gifts of charity. You may tower high in philanthropy. But if you have not love, it means nothing. You may even give your body to be burned and die the death of a martyr. 
your blood spilt by maybe a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn. And thousands may praise you as history's supreme hero. But even so, if you have not love, your blood was spilt in vain. You must come to see that it is possible for a man to be self-centered in his self-denial and self-righteous in his self-sacrifice. He may be generous in order to feed his ego and pious in order to feed his pride. Man has the tragic capacity to relegate a heightening virtue to a tragic vice. Without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. So the greatest of all virtues is love. It is here that we find the true meaning of the Christian faith. This is at bottom the meaning of the cross. The great event on Calvary signifies more than a meaningless drama that took place on the stage of history. It is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the most durable power in the world and that it is at bottom the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. Only through achieving this love can you expect to matriculate into the university of eternal life. And now unto him who was able to keep us from falling and lift us from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope, From the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy, to him be power and authority forever and ever. Amen. Church, this is our God who is able to do far more, exceedingly abundantly, more than we can ever ask or imagine. To turn us, to transform us into a people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with our God. This is my prayer for us, that we would be this kind of people, that we would bear this kind of witness in this city. May it be so. So as we close and have some time and space to respond, prayer prayer station is going to be open for you to receive prayer. If there's anything at all that you want to receive prayer for, this, this place is for you. But if there's even something in particular that God has been stirring in your heart, maybe God is, is, is doing something in you to say, I, I want to be a person who is characterized more and more by justice and righteousness and love. I, I would invite you to receive prayer to just be honest before God and say, Lord, would you show me what that looks like in my life? Or maybe God is just inviting you to pray for this community. I invite you to do that too. However the Spirit is leading you to respond in this moment, respond. So let's let's leave that space for the Spirit to move and see what God will do.